Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and we are back in San Francisco for our sojourn to our nation's capital. And I'm joined by my co-host, Charlene Chang, my book editor for Brown is the New White and now Director of Strategic Communications for Democracy in Color. Hi, Charlene. Did you enjoy our time in Washington? Hey, Steve. Yeah, I, I had a really good time. It was really cold. We were there for that big, sudden cold snap. But I had a great time, especially with our interview with Nir Tandon. And it was, it was definitely pretty cool to be there during the impeachment hearings. Yeah, uh, you great. don't get to do that every day. And we actually got to stand outside the room where it was happening. And I was joking. We weren't in the room where it happened, but we were outside. We and could see in it. <laughs> yeah, we could see the line and kind of catch sort of the, the hubbub, the buzz. And it was um, pretty exciting. And um, yeah, so that was really fun. I'm glad we did that. Looking forward to being back there again. And oh, you know what? Speaking of, I remembered that you had told me that you had a really cool experience too on your way back, um, heading uh, heading home at the airport. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, no, it was really very um, surprising and usual. It was just uh, yeah, it was just a really great experience. That so we were at, at I had this encounter with Jesse Jackson at National Airport when we were uh, getting ready to come home. Um, so for those who don't know, in terms of why this was you know so significant to me. Jesse's 1980 presidential campaigns were my political baptism, right? He was a 20-year-old activist at the time and was really inspired uh, by being able to learn from somebody who had worked side-by-side with Martin Luther King. And I remember I was uh, so captivated by the campaign. And then I've always been a word person as well, right? So that, you know, at one point I knew Jesse's entire hour-long 1984 convention speech by heart. I was actually at that speech in San Francisco. I would walk around campus reciting it out loud, I guess the way normal people do with music lyrics. Yeah, except that that's not really normal, <laughs> but that's <laughs> right. very telling, Steve, that that's right. what you so did when you were like, 20. <laughs> was it um, Young America, dream, choose the human race over the nuclear race, bury the weapons and don't burn the people. And yes, that's what I would go around you know, uh, uh, quoting. That's awesome. And so when I finished my book, I dedicated it in part to him, and I really tried to honor um, Jesse's legacy in terms of what he had done both in terms of social change and as well as U.S. politics, right? And so after the, after the dedication to my parents in the book, I wrote to Reverend Jesse L. Jackson Sr., who risked his life to show the world the power and potential of an electoral rainbow coalition connected to the movement for social justice, I was paying attention. So I'm at the airport, right, walking to the gate, and at the corner of my eye, I see Reverend sitting, eating in this restaurant. I don't like to bother people when I'm traveling or an airport, so I just keep walking. So then I'm standing at the gate with our podcast producer, Olivia, and Jesse's aide, Shelly Davis, comes up to me and taps me on the shoulder, and he says, Reverend Jackson would like to talk to you. Wow. Right, so I mean, I've met Reverend, but I don't really know that he knows who I am. Yeah, right? He's right. very famous, he knows all these different people. So I went over to where he was sitting, and then Reverend has Parkinson's disease now. He's been very public about that. And so it's actually kind of hard to understand his speech. But he shakes my hand and says, we should get together. And then he says, I read your book. 
Wow. And so it was, yeah, it was just really, really moving. So I thanked him and walked away. That was like the sum of the of the experience and exchange was, was short, but it was just very, very moving. And I was very, very touched by the whole thing. That's just incredible. I just feel like you had told me that before and I moved again. I get the goosebumps and I don't start getting kind of emotional mm-hmm. because it is that sort of doubling of history. And he's such, you know, what a like legend and you you have been so impacted by him and and the fact that we've worked together on a book is really personally meaningful to me that he said that to you about the book and just really touching and uh i just also like what are the chances the two of you would be there at the same time it's a very like the universe um is really putting the two of you there at the same time is great Uh, and i I know how much how important he is to you you've really talked about him over the years so so great that you got to have that moment yeah, no, that was definitely very memorable. So, in the in the spirit of keeping hope alive, <laughs> yes, what's on tap stories. for today's episode? <laughs> uh, well, today we are going to have a little bit of a different episode. We're going to have some fun. It is Thanksgiving um, season, and so we are calling this our Thanksgiving episode. And for our listeners out there, just so you know, we are releasing this episode on Wednesday instead of our usual release date, which is Thursdays, so that the idea is that listeners, you guys can have a chance to listen on your drive up to see your relatives and whether or not you're looking forward to it. It's something that hopefully can bring, um, make your day, bring a smile to your face. And it is going to be the busiest travel day of the year, so it's a good time to listen to the podcast. And for our podcast, um, for the special Thanksgiving episode, we decided to do something a little fun. Uh, towards the end of our episode, we're going to ha- hear some stories from our audience members who have called in to share some Thanksgiving stories and memories. And then after that, we'll have um, do our Hidden Figures segment. And that's the segment where we shine a light on a key person in the movement who we feel is doing awesome work, but just doesn't get enough um, publicity, doesn't get, isn't really well, really well known at this point, and giving them, you know, lifting them up. And then we're going to wrap it up by talking about our own Thanksgiving stories and memories. And with that, what we are going to do first is we're going to do our news and review. So, Steve, I know you had just talked earlier about the power of the Rainbow Coalition in those presidential campaigns way back in the 1980s. Way back. (laughs) And I wanted to talk about today's equivalent of that coalition, what you call the New American Majority, a lot of people call it the Obama Coalition, and I want to talk about that in the context of the status currently as we sit here now of the Democratic presidential, you know, the race, the presidential race, the Democratic uh, candidates in the race and uh, just overall, just what are your thoughts? Just give us a, you know, give us your thoughts on what's happening right now. Yeah, so a lot has happened, and the race is entering the home stretch before the Iowa caucuses, which will be in uh, a little over two months. Um, and they just had a debate recently, another debate. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but I think one of the biggest pieces of news most recently is that uh, New York. Former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg and multi-billionaire Michael Bloomberg has officially jumped into the presidential race. Yeah, so I heard. Although, you know, I felt like it was a little bit more like a whimper than a bang. I mean, I heard about it, um, and the launch was, I don't know, it didn't kind of register really big on my scanner. But I heard about it, read about it, and... I've got some thoughts, but my my main question is, obviously one of my first thoughts is, do we really need another mega billionaire in the race, uh, mega billionaire who's white, straight, male, mega billionaire 
is uh, what does this mean for the race? And also, does he have a chance? Uh, when, you know, what, it, what are your thoughts around it? Yeah, well, we certainly don't need any more candidates getting in. Right. I think 18, <laughs> 21, 22, whatever is enough. Um, but I think what it shows is how broad and deep the desperation is to mm. defeat Trump. And I actually think that there's a real possibility that people are underestimating the potential significance of Bloomberg's candidacy. I mean, it's certainly going to be unprecedented. There are no templates. There's nothing we can reference back to say this type of a thing works or doesn't work. Right. I mean, I've heard that he could spend a billion dollars on this race. Oh my right. Gosh. I mean, he has wow. 53 billion. That's He's 77 years old. It is mind boggling. But that's more than the entire Democratic Party spent in 2018. Wow. So in a lot of ways, it's almost like it could potentially be a one-man political party. And if he doesn't spend it all on TV ads and he invests a lot of it in mobilizing voters of color, it could actually help Democrats across the country, especially in key Senate races. So he's already announced he's going to do $20 million of voter registration in places like Texas. I've heard he's going to hire hundreds of organizers on the ground in Texas and other states. So that could actually be you know, quite significant. Um, so we're just going to have to see, but I, I, I think people might be underestimating the, the potential of that. Bigger picture, one of the things that's most unpredictable about this race is what's going to happen with the black vote. Right. African Americans have been decisive in determining the Democratic nominee every Democratic nomination for the past 25 years. That's right. But things are scrambled this time around. I mean, you have two black candidates, right? Corey and Kamala. Well, I guess three with Deval Patrick, but it's, his campaign isn't really getting traction and it's late. But you have two who've been out there and building support um, for the whole year. And you have uh, Joe Biden, right? The vice president of the first black president. And on top of that, you have this deep-seated view that white voters won't support any candidate except a traditional white male. That's right. And I mean, I definitely hear people out there sort of chewing on these facts that you just mentioned and observing the polls and where black voters currently are stand still in the polls. And I think, you know, what I'm just going to point out, like some of the interesting tweets that I've uh, seen out there, one of them is by this guy, Corey Richardson. He's an African-American black author who he wrote a book, by the way, called We Used to Have Money, Now We Have You, A Dad's <laughs> Bedtime Story. This is such a hilarious title. But he's, he's, uh, he's got a lot of interesting tweets out there, sort of provocative and thought-provoking. One of his tweets from last week, he highlighted this very point about how a lot of African-Americans are looking at and feeling about this election and... Uh, so he, I'll read his tweet here. Black people saw what white people did to Hillary Clinton. And we're the once-bitten, twice-shy types who aren't going to roll the dice on making history when our basic rights are in jeopardy. When given the choice between a qualified woman and Trump, white folks picked Trump. And I would add to that between, when given the choice between a qualified white woman and Trump, white folks picked Trump. Right. So I understand that people are not feeling, well, African-Americans, what he's saying is that African-Americans might not be feeling that they can take the risk and chance of voting for who they really want to versus who they think can beat Trump. Right. I think that th that sentiment is, I think, frankly, deeper than I had fully uh, appreciated myself. Um, 
So Stead Herndon, the young black reporter at the New York Times, he just he wrote a great article about the attitudes of black voters, and that sentiment came through really strongly. And there's also an episode of the Daily, the New York Times' podcast, The Daily, where he's in South Carolina talking to different voters um, about those attitudes. And it is very profound. And it's interesting, also reflecting that when Obama ran in 2008, there was not an incumbent president. And so that sense, uh, and then certainly the, the, right. what we're up against in terms of this current president, this level of the democracy is at stake, our very lives are at stake, is very, very deep and way more uh, salient than simply having somebody who comes from or represents our community, which would be preferable, but not at the risk of, of losing this election. So people don't want to take a risk, and they just feel that the stakes are too high. There's certainly a significant voter of all voters who feel that, and a large number of the African Americans feel that as well. So no, I definitely am hearing that, and I get it, but does that what it worries me is that does that mean that we should then all get behind a white guy? It's just to be on the safe side. No, we? we're not going there. It's interesting <laughs> in um, in 2003, right? My wife um, thought both that this country would not elect a black man and it wouldn't elect a woman. So mm. she was saying back in 03, maybe we should get behind John Edwards, right? Um, so no, we're not going to do another edition of the book saying, never mind, turns out white is the new white. Right. But, <laughs> That's a different audience yes. to would buy that book. <laughs> the numbers that we analyzed in the book are still the numbers. And whoever the Democratic nominee is should win the presidency. I mean, it's fascinating to me that even Bernie, right, the unapologetic socialist, He's leading Trump in the national polls. So this country is very divided. There are not many people who are undecided about this president. And there is, in fact, a new American majority. People of color and progressive whites are the majority of people, and they are majority of people in enough states to win the Electoral College. So we should win if we, in fact, turn out our voters. But in terms of the mood and the attitude of the primary voters, particularly black voters, as we said, people definitely don't want to get risky. And that's a big part of why Biden has maintained the strong black support, which I th- that's what really keeps him in the lead in the national polls. So that is really just all really interesting to think about. And I guess so what this means is that Biden, even though he's not really performing that well in the debates or on the campaign trail, there's still a chance that he could pull this off. There's definitely a chance, and that, I think that the persistence of his lead in the polls shows that, and which is really a reflection of more than anything else. Again, it's this desperation to, in that and this assessment, right, that we you know put forward a you know qualified white woman, and that was rejected in favor of Trump. So then let's get the more safer choice. So that's definitely, I think, still the animating. Uh, reality of the campaign. But as we've seen, he's a terrible campaigner and a terrible debater. Um, And so I think he's at real risk of losing the first two states, Iowa and New Hampshire. And then that would likely deflate this perception that he's our strongest candidate to defeat Trump. I have a friend who referred to his campaign as a souffle, right? That's likely to collapse here. That's not to say much about souffles. (laughs) (laughs) So there is a scenario that if that white guy falters in terms of Biden, mm-hmm. that and in swoops Bloomberg, spending more money than God, who's to say that black voters at that point won't say, let's go with this, with this white billionaire to take out the white racist billionaire? It's not an insane proposition. 
So, and I feel like, you know, stepping back, who knows, right? Is a, is a Mike Bloomberg, Stacey Abrams ticket backed by Bloomberg's billions really the worst thing in the world? I'd be excited to see Stacey Abrams in the White House for the next 16 years, first as vice president, then as president. Yeah, that, I always think it's so interesting where we, we get, come back to this, you know, these different scenarios. But if Stacey can be VP, then mm-hmm. it, gives us, it gives us hope, which no, yeah. I would like to see. I'm always going to, you know, hold on to that hope. And yeah. it does make me feel more um, like I can look forward to any kind of outcome. Right. And um, I was telling Susan that there the is nobody side. more likely to be the vice president than Stacey. I mean, other people right. be in the mix, people are tossed around. But in terms of someone who's more likely, Stacey's very much, very high on a very short list. That's great to hear. And uh, but I, I got to be honest. Sometimes when I, you know, I ha- I still have mixed feelings about the Bloomberg um, candidacy. I'm I'm sort of because it's all so new, and I'm I'm going to pay close attention. And I think I'm intrigued by some of the upsides that you've pointed out. And I, I think that there's maybe some stories that haven't really been told about the possible upsides. Uh, I think it's it realize it's all really relative now. People are just kind of like myself, just thinking, okay, as long as Trump doesn't win, it is you know everything can seem like an upside. Right. So um, so what we're saying is we shouldn't discount Bloomberg. And then there's also the rest of the field, you know, including a lot of the candidates who have been in the game in this race for a while. And I know there's a number of new polls that have come out recently. They've drawn a lot of attention. There's just all these ongoing polls. And I want to help our listeners understand more about some of those recent polls. So we're going to move to our The Doctor is In segment to get insight and analysis from our distinguished data scientist, Dr. Julie Martinez-Ortega. So Julie, checking in with you, are you there? Hi, good to be with (laughs) y'all. Doctor, thank you for seeing us, especially during a holiday week. So the, as we know, the Democratic presidential contest kicks off in Iowa. It's coming up, um, saying a little over two months. And as we've discussed before, and I still think it's worth repeating again, that people don't fully appreciate in all their um, predictions and whatnot, just how much of a role Iowa will play in terms of reshaping the contest, certainly in terms of who has momentum and in terms of also winnowing and narrowing down the field. So in that context, what do the latest polls show us about the state of the race in Iowa? Yeah, so the gold standard um, for polling in Iowa is the Des Moines Register poll. And, you know, they've been doing this now for who knows how many um, cycles going back, but um, sort of the place that people look to to get those insights. So about a week ago, they released um, some new findings. And um, basically, we've seen some real shifts, right? So you've probably been hearing about this in the news. Um, But uh, Mayor Pete has surged up into now first place and with a significant lead um, ahead of pretty much everybody. So he's up at 25 percent right now. And he, you know, basically jumped a full nine uh, percentage points. So he was only at 16 percent about a month or so ago. And there's a, you know, gap. But then he's followed by. Warren, Sanders, and Biden, who all are at 16, 15-ish percent. And everyone else beyond them is at 6% or less. So you've got sort of Pete out in front, um, the small grouping of Warren, Sanders, Biden, 
and then everybody else down, um, you know, just really in the single digits. Yeah, but Buttigieg's surge, I think a lot of people were surprised by it, but it was actually predicted um, by Pat Pat Reinard of the Iowa starting, mm-hmm. starting line, the, the political website and podcast, and he was on our podcast in October. And he was saying that you could see the support out there in the field for, for Buttigieg, but it wasn't showing up in the polls yet. So it looks like it has now. Mm-hmm. So what does the poll show about how locked in the voters are? Is, is this basically Buttigieg's to lose now? Mm, so it's a great question to ask. It's actually um, a situation where things are still incredibly fluid and unsettled. And uh, that's definitely the case right now. It's been the case historically. But right now we've got 62% of people saying that they could still change their minds. And um, it's also really important to point out that when asked um, whether the vote, who else, what other candidates the voters are still considering, there are still other people that are popping up consistently and seven candidates are in that grouping. So that's um, obviously Mayor Pete, uh, Warren, Sanders, Biden, Klobuchar, Harris, and Booker. So those candidates are still in play for uh, a significant number of the of the uh, caucus goers, likely caucus goers in in Iowa. Yeah, and I think I saw a tweet from the person who did the poll by saying that she looks at that number as more significant in terms of who people are considering, and that I think it's like in the you know around forty percent or so are still considering Booker, who's like polling the lowest, but he's still being you know in the mix. Similar for Harris, Harris and Klobuchar. Um, so yeah, that that all sounds right to me. And I think you had mentioned something about the thing, it, the race being fluid and, unsta- and unsettled, right? And so what do we know about historically how the polling at this point in the race, two months out, has correlated with what the ultimate outcomes are? So basically what we know is that we shouldn't count any chickens till they're hatched yet. So, <laughs> so um, in, if we look back to that 2003 race, um, at this point, uh, you know, months out, this many months out from the Iowa caucuses, uh, John Kerry, who, as we know, went on to, you know, win the whole thing, um, he was actually only polling at about 10%. And John Edwards uh, was, you know, barely hitting double digits at this point. And what actually happened come February of um, of 04 was that Kerry ended up with 30, 37, almost 38 percent of the vote. And Edwards came in a really strong second with almost 32 percent of the vote. So massive shifting uh, happened and has often happened, um, you know, over the years. Yeah, I think people have forgotten that, uh, or they got distorted in history, right? At this point in 2003, it was all about um, Howard Dean. There's the whole Dean phenomenon, mm-hmm. people with the orange hats, and they were going door to door, and that was going to be, and then and then completely uh, flipped in history. People, he gave that speech after he lost in Iowa, and that's where he you know, did the Dean scream. People thought that's why he lost. He, he was screaming because he had lost, right? He had had the lead that then Kerry surged from way far behind to actually win. So so as I look at it, I, I do think that, I think that the there's a possibility, if not likelihood, that there will, we'll see shifts again, right? I think even in 2015, 16, Bernie was like way far behind 
and then came up to lose by like you know point tenth one tenth of a percent something like that. So I think any of the top seven of these people could win Iowa, right? That the four who are up front now: Warren Sanders, Biden, and Buttigieg. And I think that there's still time and a path for any of the Klobuchar, Harris, or Booker to still surge at the end. Mm-hmm. And also, it's important that it's not just surging to win. And I think that this happened with John Edwards and also happened in 84 with uh, um, Gary Hart. It's do you exceed expectations? And that's really right. media, mm-hmm. I don't know, fiction, but it becomes reality because the media says it. So if somebody surges from far behind and even comes in second, maybe even third, they could say, oh, he's you know got the momentum. And then that could give them a little moment- momentum heading into North, uh, to New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina. So uh, it, I think it remains complete, very unpredictable, and all of these different things um, are in play. I just want to say, I, th- I find all this so fascinating. And I, it's like thinking about the, you know, put you, uh, hearing everything put in the context of history and being reminded of where uh, certain candidates were in history and what they were polling. Uh, it's really, it's just a good reminder that we don't know anything right now. <laughs> it gets really easy to get caught up in really reading everything each day, caught up in the daily news about the polls and starting to think that they mean something and that they're predicting something. And what I'm hearing both of you say is that's just absolutely not true. Anything is still kind of fair game. Uh, is, that, is that about right? What's the saying? People make plans and God laughs. <laughs> People take read polls and then reality <laughs>, laughs. Yeah. So, True that. Thanks for that, Julie. And now that we're up to date on the state of the presidential race, let's turn our attention to Thanksgiving. <laughs> And we have asked people, like I said earlier, we had asked some of our listeners to call into a hotline number, something that we did for the first time. It was really fun to get invite people to share their Thanksgiving stories, memories, anything they wanted to share on the hotline that had to do with Thanksgiving. And we're really, we're really stoked at, to have the chance to do this. It was really fun, and we're appreciative that a number of people did call in. And so we wanted to thank the people who did call in. And we're going to listen now to some of those audience members that we were able to select to share a little bit about what they had to say about this holiday. Hi, Steve. It's Steph, and I'm giving you my holiday story. One of my favorite Thanksgiving was one that started in tragedy, like all good holiday stories. I was totally broke. Um, I didn't have a functioning oven or stove. And the day before Thanksgiving, my car broke down, so I couldn't even go home to my parents. I bought a small Cornish hen and some instant potatoes. I cooked the hen in a toaster oven and made the potatoes on one of those things that you use to heat up tea water. I drank very cheap wine that had been left in my apartment by somebody's ex-boyfriend and hung out all day reading books. It was really one of the best Thanksgivings I've ever had. Hey, this is Courtney Teasley, and I know Steve Phillips as simply Uncle Steve. For Thanksgiving, the tradition has become that I cook. So I cook in my house, and I cook all the good foods, chicken and dressing, you know, sweet potatoes, sun greens, all my husband's favorites. And we usually have a lot of our friends who don't, you know, go home for the holidays. They usually come over to our house and eat as well as my family and friends. And so 
I usually get up early in the morning. I never cook the day before. Now, I shop the last minute all the time. I'm always rushing, can't find time to green, screaming, crying, have a fighting line. And, you know, Kroger becomes Club Kroger because it is so hard to get in the parking lot. But I wait for the last minute. I go shop. And then... Early that morning, I get up, I start playing music, I put on my apron, and it's a Thanksgiving apron because I'm very seasonal, and then I start cooking everything. And um, it usually takes me all the way until the end of about 3, 4 o'clock before everything is totally ready, so I cook all day long. When everything is ready, everybody comes over, we eat, we have a good time, we play cards, we have tons of fun laughing and talking. And by the end of the day, I am passed out on the couch sleep because I have stayed up all day trying to cook for everybody else. I love it. I wouldn't have it any other way. So that's my Thanksgiving story. Y'all have a great one. All the way from Nashville, it's Courtney Teasley. Bye. I'm Kaylee. My favorite part of think memory of Thanksgiving was going to Palm Springs. My favorite dish was the pumpkin pie because I like pumpkin pie. And why I liked it there was because there was a swimming pool where I was staying. Hi, this is Laura Brady from San Francisco, and I wanted to share with everyone what it's like to have a Mexican Thanksgiving at our house. For our family, having a Mexican Thanksgiving means that we have an array of delicious Mexican dishes such as tinga, chicken mole, tamales, fresh salsas, coupled with some agua frescas and a tequila-based drink, usually a cazuela. Right before dinner, we hold hands and go around sharing what we're thankful for the year. Rather than immediately cleaning up after dinner, we like to stick around and have long conversations that can last hours. We've done it this way for the last few years, and we really enjoy it. We love spending quality time together as a family and have meaningful conversations away from TV and electronics, and trying to expose our young girls to their mother's culture. Thank you. Oh, man. Those are great. Yeah, it's so interesting. This is a spectrum as well. I mean, it's just fascinating how across the cultural rainbow that you have the same day, but people experience it in so many different fashions, right? And, yeah. And uh, do you want to say who Kaylee is? Oh, Yeah. Kaylee's my daughter, and I, I promise I didn't have to bribe her to do that. Once I described what we were doing, and I asked her if she'd like to participate, she's really excited, and um, just yeah, it is one of her favorite holidays, and it's one of mine too. It was really fun to get her to participate. But can I tell you how much I loved your niece, Courtney? Now I feel like I need to meet her. Oh, she has this awesome character. voice, great storyteller, she and even is. though I've never met her, I was like, I got to meet this woman. She's funny. She's a good storyteller. I loved her, what she shared. <laughs> She's made me laugh character. so much. Yeah, no, she's a lawyer, social justice wow. activist in Nashville, and, and a, a big personality. That was great. Yeah, so thank you again to everybody who participated. Really made it uh, really special for us and fun. And before we wrap up, we're going to do our Hidden Figure segment. And again, the Hidden Figure segment is a part of our show where we like to shine a spotlight on a leader in the movement who's doing important work that we really feel is underappreciated and overlooked, and they, they just de deserve some more, you know, big it up time, big props to them. And we realize that uh, as much as Thanksgiving is a time where a lot of us get to celebrate with our families, and it's a time that we appreciate, 
And it is also a time and a holiday with a history that does have problematic origins in the way that the history is tied to the Native American history in this country. And we wanted to make sure that we make time to mark that this day by reflecting on and honoring the indigenous people of this country. So in that spirit, today's hidden figure is Anathea Chino. Anathea is a national Native American leader. She's an enrolled member of Acoma Pueblo, New Mexico. And she works to create pathways that ensure that women of color and indigenous women are visible and represented in the political landscape and in women's advocacy movements. Anathea has more than 15 years of experience as a political strategist, fundraiser, and operative at the tribal, state, and national levels. She's previously served as an investment advisor at the Democracy Alliance, the National Progressive Donor Alliance, and she's the co-founder and co-leads the the organization called Advance Native Political Leadership, which is a first-of-its-kind project to address the underrepresentation of Native Americans in local and state elected positions. And that organization has a focus and mission, which is increasing inclusion and visibility of indigenous women in the political landscape. Anathea, among the many things she's done, incredible things she's done, she helped Deb Haaland become the first Native American woman ever elected to Congress. And what we have here today we want to share with you is a clip of Anathea introducing the now Congresswoman Haaland at an event in 2018. Indigenous communities make up just 1% of the total population nationwide and hold just 0.03% of all elected positions. So we understand that we cannot protect our communities or move forward alone. For years, Deb has cultivated relationships across cultures, issues, and faiths with an authenticity so compassionate it's beautiful and reflective of our collective values. When she is elected in November, she will be the first Native American woman to serve in Congress. <laughs> As a single mother who struggled with making ends meet, she brings with her the strength of our ancestors who gifted us the survival skills and intelligence necessary to adapt to the harshest of environments. And she does this all with thoughtful strategy, humor, and grace. Please join me in welcoming our next Congresswoman from the beautiful state of New Mexico, Deb Holland. Yeah, and it turned out in 2018 that Deb Holland did win, and also Sharice Davids out of Kansas was elected, and she's also uh, Native American. So oh, we wound up right. having that's two right. Native American women elected. So awesome. One of the highlights of that year for sure. And uh, I wanted to add that currently Anathea is the advancement director of this awesome organization, Ultraviolet. And Ultraviolet is a national advocacy organization that drives feminist culture and political change. Definitely everyone should check it out. And I had the opportunity, I was felt really lucky, I had the opportunity to just briefly meet her during the 2016, um, at the 2016 Democratic National Convention in Philly. And she just had this great energy about her and is just clearly very passionate about her work. Yeah, and I think that energy really comes through um, in that clip. Yeah, and Anthony is awesome, right? I mean, I've known her for about a decade now and that, you know, she's truly a badass leader. 
out there making change. And she was really helpful to me, uh, if you remember, um, Charlie, when I was writing Brown is the New White, in terms of consulting on Native American issues, including whether it was even okay to use the term Native right, American. Right, which term we right? should use. I definitely remember that. And that she was critically important, and she directed me to the work, actually, of her, of her aunt, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, who's one of the country's leading scholars on Native American history. Roxanne's book, An Indigenous People's History of the United States, was really indispensable to me. And Anathea's journey is also fascinating to me as an example of how people can creatively transfer their experiences from one arena to another. Right. So at one time, she actually worked at Nordstrom's. And, and I feel like not only did those skills transfer to her styling business, but I also think dealing with demanding customers actually prepared her for working with major donors when she was at the Democracy Alliance. Because major donors can be quite demanding themselves. So it's really quite a fascinating story of how she's weaved together all these experiences to be a really significant social change activist in this country. Yeah, definitely multi-talented. And I always thought it was so interesting when I first learned about her political styling work. I didn't even know what that was. I didn't know that was a thing. And then when I learned what it was, it made so much sense to me that basically as part of her services, I think she has her own company where she does the services through. She helps a lot of women, especially women of color, help them find a style that works for them. So this includes wardrobe, makeup, hairstyle, and it works for them, but it also simultaneously helps them present themselves as power players in the political world. So no matter what level they're at in their career, they're they're presented in a way where they just they come off really badass and they uh, it really lifts them up and helps people take them more seriously and it is a thing it just you know whatever you think about you know whether or not people should judge people on the way they look uh, and present themselves it's a reality and so when these women get this kind of like a makeover and these tips and guides it really helps lift them up onto that path even more and I just think the work sounds really empowering yeah well that's just reminded me not even just for women right that when I first ran for office way back in <laughs> 1992 when I was with the jeans and t-shirt only wardrobe mm-hmm. Now, Dr. Julie Martinez Ortega took me shopping to be able to figure out how to buy a wardrobe that I could present myself to the voters. She was your political stylist. She was, before it was hip. It matters. All right, so now it's time to wrap up, and we always like to end on a fun personal question on that fun note. And so today, what I'm going to have me and you, Steve, and you, Julie, is answer the question in the spirit of Thanksgiving Today's question is, what's a Thanksgiving memory you would like to share with us today? And Steve, do you want to go first? Sure. I mean, it was very uh, nostalgic hearing my uh, niece, Courtney, talk about how she does Thanksgiving, because it actually reminds me of our Thanksgiving back in the 70s when I was a child. Um, we were at our Aunt Mildred's house. We would always, the whole family would come together, kind of the way that Courtney talks about. We would eat. My brothers and I would go watch football, um, the Cowboys or the Lions play every uh, um, every Thanksgiving, and that my um, but when we ate, the, one of the memories that sticks with me is before the meal, we you know I always have a prayer. Right, so my grandfather was a minister; he was a minister for fifty years, and so he would do the prayer, um, usually a long prayer, the way that uh, black preachers do, and then when he would finish, my uncle Alvin would always always regularly follow that up by saying, "Good food, good meat." Good Lord, let's eat. <laughs> That's nice. I'll, I'll just go real quickly. Is I grew up a uh, Chinese immigrant family, and the families we got together with were all other Chinese immigrants that were friends of my parents. And 
through the years when I was a kid, mostly because those of our Chinese parents who didn't grow up with Thanksgiving, they, a lot of them didn't like turkey, so they didn't make traditional Thanksgiving food. We had delicious Chinese food, usually fish was the centerpiece, and us kids who were mostly American-born Chinese were quite disappointed and kind of bummed that we didn't, weren't getting the same traditional Thanksgiving meals that our friends did, um, our mostly you know, white and other you know, African-American and other American friends who were at school, but were going to tell us how delicious the turkey was. And what I remember the most is one of the, we call them aunties, but a friend of my parents, her name is Grace, Auntie Grace. Um, uh, she had worked as a waitress at Macy's and learned how to cook American food. So at her house, she would, if she was hosting, she would make a full Chinese meal and a full traditional Thanksgiving meal with a turkey. And I just appreciated that so much about her and her willingness to do that for us kids who really wanted to get to break the wishbone and have all the turkey and trimmings. So those were some of my memories of Thanksgivings when I was a kid. Julie? So a couple of years ago, my friend and fellow Tejana, Mirna Perez, invited me and my son up to New York to celebrate the holiday with her and her family. And she mentioned that they were going to have some people over from her church. And I thought that meant, you know, two or three people would join us. Well, it turned out she had probably two dozen folks who ended up coming and she'd just thrown open the doors to her home, um, I guess at that week's service and invited everybody who you know needed a place to go to share the, the table with us to come on in. And it was really just a fascinating, fun experience to be there with folks from just about every continent, uh, people speaking all sorts of different languages. Uh, we had a lot of elderly folks, including um, who also brought along their caregivers because um, some of them were in wheelchairs and needed assistance. And for a number of the caregivers, they were immigrant um, folks themselves and were experiencing Thanksgiving for the first time, a few of them. So that was just a really fun way to sort of experience the holiday. Um, and, you know, even that evening when folks were, had left and we'd done our cleanup and everything, um, we actually stayed back and helped babysit their little toddler while she and her husband went out and shared the food that, uh, all the extra food that we'd cooked uh, with the folks who, you know, were living out on the street nearby her house. So it was just um, a really shiny example for me of uh, generosity and sharing and you know really sort of the what the thanksgiving spirit i feel is supposed to be about so i'm always grateful to her for that that experience that's great okay so that's all the time we have now thank you for listening to democracy in color with steve phillips and thank you to our listeners who called in and left voicemail messages we'd like to incorporate the voices of our audience members on a regular basis going forward so if you want to leave us a comment or question our hotline number is 415-209-5103, and we will try to answer your questions in one of our upcoming episodes. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color or at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production Produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang and April Elkier. Recorded at the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, happy Thanksgiving and keep the faith.